Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine this morning. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tracy Boomgaard. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa's president faces tough questions about his commitment to tackling corruption in the country. 6,000 tons of cereals blocked on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria a day after Cameroon banned some exports to its neighbor. In economics news, the South African Automobile Association predicts a drop in most fuels for September. But first up the news with Anne Musa. SABC News independent and impartial from an African perspective Amen Musa good morning hours before the regional summit on Mali's political future coup leaders have released ousted president Ibrahim Boubacar Keita from detention and allowed him to return home a group of military officers who call themselves the National Committee for the Salvation of the People has controlled the West African country since last week after they detained Keita at gunpoint and forced him to resign the takeover heightened fear that it could further destabilize the West African nation Kate's release 9 days after he was ousted and detained had been one of the demands of West Africa's regional bloc ECOWAS. They sent a delegation to Mali at the weekend to discuss a timeline for transition to civilian rule with the coup leaders. South Africa has recorded a coronavirus recovery rate of 86% translating to over 530,000 recoveries nationally. However, the country has also recorded 126 more COVID-19 related fatalities in the last 24-hour cycle, bringing the death toll to 13,628. The number of coronavirus cases have increased to 618,286 after a further 2,585 new infections were recorded. Zoleka Godashe has more. South Africa's recovery rate is fast approaching 90%. It increased from over 516,000 recoveries on Monday to over 530,000 in the last report. Gauteng has the highest number of recoveries at 178,479, followed by the Western Cape with 96,114 recoveries, Guazunadal 94,680, and the Eastern Cape 81,373. All these provinces also recorded COVID-19 related deaths in the last 24-hour cycle. More than 13,000 domestic violence incidents were reported in South Africa under lockdown between the 27th of March and the 3rd of June. This has been revealed by Police Minister Beki Tsele. He was responding to an EFF parliamentary question in the National Council of Provinces. Mercedes Percent reports. 
Minister Tele says 13,192 verified counts of domestic violence were reported to the police between 27th March and 3rd of June. The total number of people who were arrested and prosecuted were 14,026. The province with the most incidents of domestic violence was Gauteng, which had 3,769 arrests and prosecutions. This is followed by the Western Cape with 3,387. The Eastern Cape Free State in KwaZulu-Natal had between 1,300 and 1,700 people arrested and prosecuted for domestic violence. Authorities in the Cuban capital, Havana, have announced a curfew from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. daily in an effort to curb the spread of the coronavirus. This follows a surge in new cases. Cuba's coronavirus infections are relatively low and compared to other nations with just over 3,800 cases recorded, just 92 COVID-19-related fatalities and over 3,000 recoveries. The BBC's Will Grant has more. The government says the stringent steps are being taken to combat the latest outbreak, showing graphs which suggest the current situation is as bad as it was at the height of the first wave of coronavirus infections in Cuba in April. Even at its peak, the highest rate of cases per day is below 100 confirmed coronavirus patients. However, with the healthcare system already stretched in Cuba, the island's authorities hope these latest measures will reduce that number considerably. U.S. Democratic vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris has slammed President Trump for his failures on the coronavirus on the day the incumbent formally accepted his party's nomination, preempting the president's major party speech and keeping the focus on a pandemic that has claimed more than 180,000 lives. Harris said Trump had failed at the most basic part of his job, which is to keep Americans safe. Donald Trump has failed at the most basic and important job of a president of the United States. He failed to protect the American people, plain and simple. Trump showed that we in the legal profession would call a reckless disregard for the well-being of the American people, a reckless disregard. In sports news, world number one Novak Djokovic heads into the U.S. Open as red-hot favorite to win his 18th Grand Slam and has played down the absence of rivals Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer. Holden Nadal pulled out earlier this month due to the coronavirus-related issues surrounding the 31st of August to the 13th of September tournament at the Flushing Meadows, while Federer will miss the rest of the season after having knee surgery in June. Apart from the absence with Federer both Hosting a record 20 major titles ahead of Nadal on 19. 2016 winner Stan Warika has also pulled out, but Djokovic noted that it will still be a very strong field featuring a pack of talented rivals. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. 
Thank you. And South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has faced tough questions about his commitment to tackling corruption in the country. He was answering oral questions in the National Assembly on various issues. Ramaphosa says it is a disgrace for people to criminally benefit from COVID-19 funds meant to protect citizens against the pandemic. But the Democratic Alliance and economic freedom fighters are not convinced that he can tackle corruption. Mercedes Percent reports. President Cyril Ramaphosa told the National Assembly that he acknowledges the outrage among South Africans, parliamentarians and the executive over the looting of COVID-19 funds. It is disgraceful that at this time of national crisis, there are companies and individuals who seek to criminally benefit from our efforts to protect people's health and to save lives. As government, we've taken several measures not only to detect, to investigate or prosecute such crimes, but also to strengthen the measures to prevent corrupt activities. To achieve this purpose, I have authorized the Special Investigating Unit to probe any allegations relating to the misuse of COVID-19 funds across all spheres of the state. He avoided answering the question on whether he believes that former Etequini Mayor Zandile Gumede should be a member of the KwaZulu-Natal legislature. The question was asked twice by the leader of the official opposition, John Stian Hazen. Gumede was sworn in as an MPL in KZN, despite the cloud of corruption allegations hanging over her head. The president insisted that the matter is being handled by the ANC. This was the interaction between him and Stian Hazen on the Gumede question. Do you support Mrs. Gumede's elevation to the KwaZulu-Natal legislature or not? It's a simple yes or no. (laughs) It's a simple question. It's a simple answer. The matter is being discussed within the structures of the African National Congress. That matter, that has caused, yes, admittedly, everybody agrees it has caused quite a lot of disquiet and the matter is being discussed within the structures of the African National Congress in a very democratic manner and leave it to those structures to deal with the matter. Thank you very much. The president's oral reply session came a day after the online publication of the names of more than 70 companies that have been awarded PPE contracts by government during this coronavirus pandemic. IFP Chief Whip Naren Singh told President Ramaphosa that it's not enough to publish the names of faceless companies that benefited from these COVID-19 tenders. Now, Mr. President, it's laudable that company names are being made public. But behind these names are faces. Now you hear of XYZ company, ABC, PTY Limited, who are the owners and directors of this company? That's something that needs to be uh, revealed. Responding to Singh, the president says it is part of their strategy to get all the details of all the companies that have benefited from the COVID-19 contracts. Yes, you're absolutely right as we fight uh, corruption. We should not only be focusing on the names, of the entities, but we should also be focusing on the faces behind those entities. And that is precisely what we are going to be drilling into. The various institutions that we have set up in what we call the Fusion Center have the capability to do precisely that. The work that is being done 
by the FIC, that work being done by SARS, work being done by the SIU, work being done by the Hawks and all these entities is going to probe so deeply as to be able, yes, to fathom the depth of the origins and the roots of all these companies. EFF leader Julius Malema challenged the president to reveal his donors of the so-called CR17 campaign in the run-up to the 2017 ANC elective conference. He says this is to establish whether they are beneficiaries of the COVID-19 PPE tenders. But president, if you unseal the CR17 documents, You make it easy for us to see if the donors of CR17 are not the beneficiaries of PPEs. You say you are fighting corruption, yet you have sealed documents which will help us to hold you and your party and your ministers accountable. So I think that it's just a lip service to say you are fighting corruption, whereas at the same time you are not telling us who donated to CR17 so that we can quickly check if these people are not beneficiaries of the PPEs. But the number one citizen, who's also the ANC president, told Malema that it's premature to answer the question due to an existing legal challenge. The issue of the funding of the what you call the CR17 funding and the uh, donor list, that matter is in court. It is in court and we must allow that court process to proceed. And uh, I think you, we all know that sometimes To preempt what a court will rule uh, is not often uh, the best uh, of things. And I hear now the allegation you make that uh, those who may well have donated were involved in PPE uh, contracting. I don't know about that. Meanwhile, on the gender-based violence issue, the president says the fight against GBV requires collective and cohesive leadership. He also says the fight against gender-based violence can only succeed if society is mobilized towards a common program of action. Following the presidential summit against gender-based violence and femicide in November of 2018, and after extensive consultations that were held, These consultations resulted in the drafting and adoption of a national strategic plan, which was also adopted by Cabinet. The implementation of the plan commenced on 1st of May 2020. The plan recognizes that the struggle against gender-based violence and femicide requires collective as well as a cohesive strategic type of leadership. That report by Mercedes Percent. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, inhabitants of the Beni territory in the eastern province of North Kivu continue to live under panic due to ongoing insecurity. At least 26 people have been killed this week by Ugandan rebels of the Allied Democratic Forces who launched an attack on three villages of that part of the country. Inhabitants are now busy fleeing their villages and the situation remains concerning as Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The three villages of Beni, the Ugandan rebels of Allied Democratic Forces, well known as ADF, attacked the starting of the week are indeed Mapasana, Maitike and Sayuni. It's only on Wednesday that the DRC armed forces, the FIRDC, country's national army and local civil authorities discovered the bodies of victims of such a new massacre. The panic is really continuing in Beni, according to this local inhabitant, Jack Saviweka Paluku. 
the situation in Beni is very bad because the enemy, Adif Nalu, continue to kill people. They have found that people killed the round of Mapasana. The situation is very bad because there are movement of population around Mapasana, around Batangimbau. People going to Oicha town and another people move around Beni town. That is the situation in Beni territory. Insecurity has forced the hundreds of thousands of people to flee their homes and the situation continues as the attacks might be resumed any time. This latest attack has come just three days after a similar raid that left at least 13 inhabitants killed in the same territory. During his campaign ahead of the 2018 presidential election, Felix Tshisekedi promised he would move the army's headquarters to Beni. That's indeed what people of Beni continue to remind him as they are under ongoing insecurity. Once more, this Beni inhabitant, Jack Saviweka Paluku. President Kisekedi promised in campaign program to install the headquarters of army in Beni to stop killing people in this area. And now people of Beni ask Kisekedi to install the headquarters to build peace in Beni. As insecurity continues and no solution has been found for years in that area, people of the Beni territory believe they have been abandoned and then they appeal to international community for peace. Jack Saviweka Paluku. People need peace in Beni and ask international community to end this war. People is dying and the international community doesn't make something to end killing people. It's more than a thousand people who have been killed in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo since last year by this allied democratic forces, ADF, that operates in the area since more than three decades. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Are you ready? Something new, informative, fun and exciting is coming your way. Channel Africa is introducing brand new shows and you, our valued listener, do not want to miss these. Live Well will be launched on the 31st of August at 10 hours and will educate us about health, wellness and health lifestyles. African Insight to be launched on the 2nd of September at 8 hours. It looks at infrastructure projects in Africa in an effort to improve the continent's economy. Yours truly, to be launched on the 31st of August, broadcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between 22 hours and 23 hours. And it will connect listeners to the loved ones through dedications, well wishes, topped up with great African music. Cuisines Africa will be launched on the 5th of September at 10 hours and we'll leave you salivating as we explore diverse African dishes, colorful culture and rich history. Tune in to www.channelafrica.co.za or DSTV802 for these new exciting editions. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective 
on the coronavirus. Coronavirus is a disease that causes respiratory illness like the flu with symptoms such as a cough, fever, and in more severe cases, difficulty breathing. You can protect yourself by washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face, and avoiding close contact one meter or three feet with people who are unwell. If you suspect to have contracted COVID-19, contact the relevant health authorities in your area. Keep listening to Channel Africa. The African Perspective will keep you updated on the latest on the coronavirus. It's 7.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa's Minister of Defence, Nosivue Mapisangakula, says her department has tried its best to comply with the National Treasury regulations when it comes to the procurement of personal protective equipment. She briefed Parliament's Standing Committee on Defence on issues around the deployment of members of the SANDF since the countrywide lockdown started in March. The deployment of soldiers has been extended from the 27th of June to the 30th of September. The employment of the 20,000 soldiers it is at a cost of 1.5 billion rand. Celine Merrington reports. Defence Minister Nosiviwe Mapisa Nkakula said she hopes the department won't be embarrassed when the list of companies who received PPE tenders are published. I've tried to keep my finger on the pulse on this matter by ensuring that as they procure PPEs, that you have your internal audit, monitoring and ensuring that they identify whatever risks. We have tried as much as is possible to comply with the regulations which have been issued by National Treasury. So I'm, I'm actually hoping that when National Treasury publishes the list of companies which have secured uh, contracts from the Defence Force, I'm really hoping that we will not be embarrassed. The Acting Chief of the Army's Joint Operations, Lieutenant General Rozani Mapanya, says besides assisting with decontaminated buildings, transporting water tanks to needy communities and food parcel distribution, the Army also conducted roadblocks and vehicle and foot patrols to ensure lockdown regulations were adhered to. He says they made various arrests and issued fines. Fines to the tune of 1.8 million were issued. 4,088 people were arrested. We have uh, fined people that violated lockdown regulations the total number of 3,190 and only within the Obnotella environment 3,318 weapons were recovered or confiscated drugs to the tune of 2.8 million were confiscated and we have managed to get contrabands to the value of 73 million rands. Mapisa Nwakula says the partnership with their Cuban counterparts assisted when the SANDF weaknesses were exposed. We all talk about the need to 
arrest the decline of the capabilities of the defense force. And this uh, pandemic actually proved to us that, in fact, we have very limited capabilities to a point where I do commend, you know, the decision to have up to sun. Because if we did not have up to sun or honorable members, I can assure you, it would have been tough with us because we hardly have even ambulances. We have very limited numbers of vehicles and ambulances. That report by Mercedes Bissent. 6,000 tons of cereals are blocked on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria a day after Cameroon banned export of millet and maize to its neighbor. Cameroon says it is assuring food safety of its population after production drastically dropped due to Boko Haram terrorism, yet export to Nigeria increased following the reopening of borders. The ban comes five months after Cameroon again reopened its northern border with Nigeria, saying it intended to promote trade and development. Mugi Kinzaga reports from Yaoundé. Damien Kinko of the Food Control Unit of Cameroon's Ministry of Trade says about 6,000 tons of maize, millet and rice have been intercepted while being transported to Nigeria, Kinko says they will hand over the cereals when the owners take commitments to sell the maize, rice, and millet only in Cameroon. We see these goods, we seize them and bring them here. It has been fruitful. Our warehouses are full. We have about uh, 2,000 bags of rice. We are in Marwa and in Gandhi. So you go to all our warehouses, our warehouses are full. The cereals were intercepted in several northern border towns and villages including Marwa, Mora, Kolofata, and Limani this week. Yakubu Usmaina, president of the Association of Millet Farmers in Mora, says they prefer to sell only in Nigeria. He says members of his association will not make any profit if they sell their millet in Cameroon. He says villagers who provided labor in millet farms escaped and his association invested so much money to transport workers from safer northern towns and villages to work in their farms. He says Boko Haram scared fertilizer sellers and the few who have remained in northern Cameroon charge very high prices for fertilizers. Usmaina said a 50-kilogram bag of millet and maize sells at between $40 and $50 in Cameroon and between $70 and $75 in neighboring northern Nigerian markets. He pleaded with the government of Cameroon to give subventions to farmers to make cereal production profitable. On Monday, Cameroon announced what it said was a temporary export ban of millet and maize. Midjiyawa Bakari, governor of Cameroon's far north region that shares a boundary with Nigeria, says the ban is a measure to assure food safety among its population. He says the government has stopped the exportation of cereals, especially millet and maize, because Cameroon risks plunging itself into hunger as a result of food shortages. 
He says the situation is preoccupying on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria, where famine looms. He says during the temporary ban on cereal exports, merchants will be authorized to take to Nigeria limited quantities of rice. Mijia Wabakari said production dropped drastically due to Boko Haram terrorism that made farmers to abandon their farms. But exports to Nigeria increased when Cameroon began a gradual reopening of its borders in February. Economist Ebenezer Njok of the University of Yaoundé One says cereal deficit in northern Cameroon now is 200,000 tons. He says the deficit is likely to increase if the few farmers who have returned are not encouraged by the government. Avec l'objectif que l'État a signé de produire 600 tonnes en 2025, he says plans to produce 600,000 tons of cereals in Cameroon by 2025 may not be achieved. He says in 2019, the Central African state produced less than 300,000 tons of cereals when it needed more than 500,000 tons, yet a majority of it was exported to Nigeria, where merchants sell at high prices. He says production may further decline because farmers who have returned to their farms lack planting seeds and fertilizers. He says excessive rainfall, floods, and the depreciating soil quality due to overuse are all indications of difficult moments for Cameroon cereal production in the years ahead. He says farmers are also still scared of Boko Haram. Cameroon says it is providing what it calls good quality planting seeds and fertilizers at reduced cost to encourage farmers to return to abandoned farms. The Central African state is also assuring civilians of their safety. The military says Boko Haram atrocities have been greatly reduced. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. It's 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning, I'm Anne Musa. In the headlines, hours before the regional summit of Mali's political future, coup leaders have released ousted President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita from detention and allowed him to return home. Authorities in the Cuban capital, Havana, have announced a curfew from 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. daily in an effort to curb the spread of the coronavirus. And U.S. Democratic Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris has slammed President Donald Trump for his failure failures on the coronavirus on the day the incumbent formally accepted his party's nomination. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Thank you, Anne. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. Our companies have acted in accordance to the best solutions to keep the business afloat during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, some of the decisions, which include retrenchments, salary cuts and role changes, have resulted in many casualties. But what does this mean for the employee who is now faced with adjusting their lifestyle following the business decision taken by the company? To unpack this, we are now joined on the line by Devon Munsami, Chief Executive Officer of the ICHAF Training Institute, a technical vocational education and training college in South Africa. Devon, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Yeah, very good morning to you and the listeners. Now, Devon, it must be very difficult um, to boost someone's morale right now, especially if they're retrenched or have taken a salary cut. Yeah, the difficulty is un, is is unlike what we've seen in the past. I mean, usually there are projections. We understand that certain things would happen in the economy, or, or people can preempt or forecast. And unfortunately, what's happened in this case is it's been so unexpected. Uh, this has just pounced on so many South African businesses as well as South African people that it's very difficult to preempt. So the anxiety surrounding this lack of knowing within organizations and salary cuts is, is pretty much, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, causing a lot of frustrations within uh, South African corporates as well as the South African people employed by these businesses. Now, just, uh, you know, looking at uh, the changes that have taken place in terms of working conditions from um, remote working or changes in roles performed by individuals, a company is doing enough to support staff. You'll notice with these uh, with these changes, some cross training had to happen. People had to now occupy different positions. So some positions have become redundant. And to answer the question, it's very difficult uh, for larger organizations to have reacted as, 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 you know, as quickly as we would have liked them to. So, so some organizations have cut 30% of their staff. Some have cut even 50%. I know one organization that we're working with have cut close to 65% of their staff complement. What this means is that the people left behind need to understand what those positions that have been made redundant and people who are no longer there because the business still needs to sustain. So they quickly have to adapt to try and understand different divisions, different uh, scopes within the organization. So given the time frame, we've just come out of lockdown. People are thrown back into their business units and in their businesses. Half their staff complements are gone, and now we have to survive. So it's very, very difficult for us to assume that every organization was prepared and is completely supported. So I'm of the feeling, just based on our assessments with our learners, I feel that there's not enough support and and not enough, I would say, done in the space of support uh, for their people.
Also, considering the financial impact, now individuals are expected to adapt to new roles or to take on more um, in mm. terms of work after retrenchments. What happens in this case where, um, you know, a, a, a business is not doing so well and uh, in the same breath, individuals are expected to now do the role of maybe three individuals that have mm. unfortunately been retrenched? Yes, and the employee is faced with this uh, with this reality because if you were, let's say, for example, in sales, and now they've thrown a little bit of the admin tasks at you because the admin person is no longer there. This is what the organisation needs to be, to do in order to be sustainable, and then the employee is faced with this because you need to earn a salary. So I need money, and therefore uh, to sustain myself at home and my family, and therefore I've got to got to try and swim now as opposed to sink. So, so people are, t- are, taking, are, are taking the challenges, not because they want to, but most likely because they're forced into a space where they have to, because we're now in survival mode. And it is like this for many organizations. You know, there are some organizations that have been screaming ahead and, and profits have been, have been remarkable during this time. And I'm talking to, to organizations, to, you know, to such organizations like, uh, you know, in the IT space and, and, and online, you know, businesses that have boomed. But many in the tourism as well as the hospitality and the restaurant industry are faced with this. So one person in the business who was traditionally doing one thing is now faced with several different things and possibly even with the salary cut. So it is a stark reality. Morale is at an all-time low as far as, uh, you know, we're seeing what some of the learners that we have in corporate. Just uh, and, and also, uh, if you look at uh, you know the likely consequences uh, of all these changes, for instance, if uh, I just uh, put in a, give an example of a salesperson who is brilliant in sales but horrible in admin, you know, mm. the company kind of loses out as well in the sense that uh, there is no admin person to take on that role, and now the salesperson um, doesn't perform as greatly as they used to. Uh, with the the added role of an ad, doing the admin, yes, it is the case, and uh, we can just use the sales and admin as an example. But there are different, uh, you know, even procurement departments versus training departments versus HR, and you'll find that one individual needs to now accommodate different roles. You see, uh, you know, the silver lining as far as that is concerned is that sometimes when we're faced with these types of pressures and challenges, we, we then uh, have an opportunity to start honing in on skills that we never tapped into before. You know, adapting is very, very important in a, in a situation like this. So if admin is not my strength, because perhaps communication or maybe selling is my strength, this is now an ideal opportunity for us to be able to embrace an area of skill that I never wanted to look at previously because I was afraid or maybe I didn't, I second-guessed my skill. But now it, we have to be able to, to adapt and change and maneuver ourselves, especially in terms of mindset, to try and accommodate what the business environment wants. So if we can do that, we find that we stay more relevant for longer. And, and it is possible for people to adapt. Now, let's talk about the importance of regular communication with staff and, most importantly, um, transparency with uncomfortable issues. Mm. 
That, that has, in some cases, been lacking, simply because people have been in lockdown. You know, there haven't been those those platforms and those channels. Not everybody has access to data and is able to sit in a Zoom meeting every day. That's just uh, applicable to a very few South Africans, you know, with those luxuries. So communication has, has, has stopped in many organizations. So whilst people were sitting at home, there was no communication. And then you get back to work, and then there's a whole influx of, of, of people within the organization, and everybody wants to communicate, but people may be feeling like it doesn't happen fast enough. And and that is the reality at the moment. There, there isn't enough communication, and communication is the one thing that people rely on to make them sell, to, to feel a little bit more comfortable. So once we are speaking to HR, once we are speaking to our, our line manager and our CEO, then we feel a little bit more relaxed. We're preempting what's going to be happening next. In the absence of this communication, I'm still in the dark. I don't know whether I'm, I'm next on the chopping block. I don't understand whether salary, you know, my salary is going to be cut or not, or how, how long am I even going to be with this organization. In the absence of communication, anxiety is at an all-time high. I, I'm going to encourage organizations to, to send out not just monthly newsletters, but weekly newsletters to try and encourage staff members um, in, in a way to be very present in business at the moment and to give 100% and to communicate any changes within the business. There's nothing worse than rumors in the corridor uh, if you're working for an organization because the CEO or the manager hasn't communicated. Mental well-being for workers right now is very, very key. Is it really being given the attention that it deserves from companies? It hasn't been given the attention because there's been Section One, you know, Section Eighteen. There's been so many other things taking place and going on. So remember, they had to comply with uh, with COVID nineteen regulations. So sanitizers needed to be purchased. Lots of different things, PPEs. Uh, there's been other focus areas. So as far as employee wellness or an EVP or an employee value proposition, I would imagine that that's dropped down in the scale of importance. So many HR executives uh, and, and many department heads, I would imagine, have had other main priorities. But this is not to say that employee wellness is not important. In fact, that is probably one of the most important. But on a scale of importance at the moment, um, employee well-being as far as keeping the virus at bay has been what has been the, the focal point for many businesses. So now that people have addressed this and companies have addressed it and, and numbers are going down, I think employee wellness needs to take the spotlight yet again. So there are many wellness programs. Some organizations have uh, therapists who you could phone and you could have a discussion with and talk about your frustration, your challenges, your, your general anxiety, and maybe even depression. And remember, you know, I'm saying depression because I, I, I know that the numbers as far as depression and anxiety groups are concerned uh, have increased and spiked during this period. Could be linked to finances, could be linked to job loss, linked to so many different things. So depression is real, anxiety is very much real, and therefore wellness needs to take a real, real, uh, uh, you know, uh, limelight at this moment because people need it. Devin, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. That's Devin Munsami, Chief Executive Officer of the ICHAF Training Institute, a technical vocational education and training college in South Africa, joining us on the line.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai It's 7.43 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Recent changes in legislation which uh, decriminalizes cannabis use for adults in South Africa has proven challenging for companies conducting drug screenings in the workplace. Cannabis can be detected for up to four weeks by standard urine tests, the type most often utilized in a work environment. These tests, however, do not tell you when the substance was used or whether the employee is impaired at the time of the test. Jermaine Kricher reports. I use cannabis products for assisting in pain management. I home grow and smoke buds from the cannabis plant as well as use of CBD oil drops. Despite the decriminalization of cannabis, this woman remains concerned about what may happen if her employers decided to test her. I'm worried about drug testing in the workplace as it may affect what my employees may think of me and my performance within the workplace as there is still a stigma with the use of cannabis products. Yanni de Villiers is director of labor consultancy firm Labor Amplified. She says there are instances where personal use can be held against employees. If you use cannabis in the morning before you come to work, you're using that in your private time because you're using that at home. And if that results in you being intoxicated in your workplace, then an employer definitely can institute disciplinary action if they investigated and found that you're being under the influence within the workplace contravenes their disciplinary codes and procedures. Because your um, OHS legislation, your occupational health and safety legislation, says very clearly that you cannot have a person in the workplace who is under the influence of, of a substance, of any substance. She says regardless of the decriminalization of cannabis, workplace policies and health and safety regulations remain applicable. However, de Villiers says administering a drug screening test from a local pharmacy is not enough. That cannabis testing is notoriously unreliable in the sense of cannabis that can be detected in a person for 10 to 14 days after the person has actually used it. But you definitely need to, uh, to have a proper disciplinary inquiry, a proper investigation in the first place as to the circumstances. Did this person appear intoxicated? Did they operate heavy machinery and cause damage? And did they test positive for cannabis? If you take all of those cumulatively, then you know it's fair to institute a disciplinary action against the person. Just Simply having a positive test in isolation doesn't necessarily mean that you have any right to discipline that employee. Professor Tim Lawrence is the head of forensic toxicology at the University of Pretoria. He says it's important to have workplace policies that outline under what circumstances drug testing will be administered, how the sample will be taken and what testing device will be used. And once the sample has been taken, a preliminary test will be performed, which gives you a yes or no answer. And there must be no decisive action on this yes or no preliminary test result. Because there can be many other compounds in the human's urine or saliva that can actually cause a false positive test result. Uh, HIV medication in cannabis is a typical example. 
Employees often find themselves under pressure to disclose their HIV status in order to clear their name. This, says Lawrence, is why confirmation tests must be performed by an accredited laboratory and the results interpreted by a trained professional. Uh, and then that test result must go to the medical review officer, not to the HR person, please. Uh, the HR person is not qualified to interpret these test results. So once the medical review officer has validated the test result, it will be given through to HR. And, and then, only then, decisive action may take place. Lauren says, unlike screening tests, the confirmation test does not just give a positive or negative answer, but rather looks at the concentration of compounds in the sample, which can indicate how recently the substance was used. Unfortunately, he adds, while South Africa has established thresholds that regulate the legal limit of alcohol in a person's system, no such limit exists for cannabis. So the word under the influence is, is still applicable in our road traffic act as well. Uh, but there should be a threshold similar to alcohol in South Africa. And I hope that they, they will start with the drafting of this legislation. He says the concentration of cannabis in the test sample is a good indication of recent use, but it cannot predict the level of intoxication or impairment. This is why testing is just one stage of the inquiry. De Villiers agrees. She says one way to mitigate the risks is to have a voluntary disclosure program with employees. Employers must also have comprehensive policies in place that are consistently applied, but employees must be cognizant of their responsibilities. You're exercising your rights and your private time, and nobody can interfere with that. However, in doing that, ensure that you don't bring it to work with you. Make sure that you have that distinction and understand that intoxication at work, the provisions with regard to that has not changed. You will be treated as though you, you uh, made a disciplinary transgression and there will be implications for you. Lawrence agrees. For the employees, employees, you must behave responsible because other people's lives are at stake as well, not only our own. For employers, I would say, please keep in mind that we work with human beings and your protocols must be designed and followed to the letter to actually not cause harm to people who cannot defend themselves. And there are many of them in our country. He says companies can consult with legal counsel, scientists and ethicists to ensure that their policies are sound, fair, ethical and in keeping with best practice when it comes to drug testing in the workplace. I'm Jermaine Kricher in Johannesburg. It's 7.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Tracy Boomgaard. Thank you, Lulu. The African Development Bank says its board has re-elected Akinwumi Adesina for a second five-year term as president. The Abidjan-based bank conducted the vote to reappoint Adesina during its annual meeting on Thursday held via video link. In a statement, the bank said Adesina, who was running unopposed, gained 100% of votes cast. His reappointment comes after the bank's ethics committee and an independent panel investigated whistleblowers' allegations that he had abused his office and cleared him of all wrongdoing in July. 
International flights expected to resume this weekend in Nigeria will now only resume next week. The Ministry of Aviation made the announcement via Twitter on Thursday. President Muhammadu Buhari suspended international flights in March in an effort to stop the spread of the COVID-19 virus. No reason has been given for the postponement. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says the looting of COVID-19 funds through personal protective equipment tenders should be a lesson to decisively act against corruption. Ramaphosa says many other countries are facing the same situation. He says looters take advantage of the pandemic. We need to take this moment as a turning point in our fight against corruption. And may I say that, you know, I've been scanning quite a number of other experiences in other countries. And I've also taken time to speak to other uh, heads of state. And many of them are going through exactly the same challenge that we are going through. That PPEs gave people with corrupt intent, with fraudulent intent, an opportunity just to make a quick buck and uh, overcharge government in many, many other countries. The South African Automobile Association's predicted a drop in most fuels for September. Commenting on unaudited data of the Central Energy Fund, the AA says some of the prices of petrol is expected to drop. The AA's Linton Beard says the only fuel set for increase is 93-octane petrol. Stronger international oil prices are outweighing a weaker rand and providing fuel price relief for most fuels going into September. We are forecasting that 95-octane petrol is expected to decrease by around 4 cents a litre, diesel to decrease by around 19 cents a litre, and illuminating paraffin by 24 cents. However, 93-octane fuel is expected to increase by 6 cents going into the new month. The current negative economic environment in South Africa, including the RAND's weakness, is contributing to making the fuel price higher than it should be and will also contribute to it taking longer to return to reasonable levels in the short to medium term. The US dollars, sorry, rather, doctors in Nairobi, Kenya have called off their strike following a deal between unions and employers. They had been on strike for a week. Union leaders say it's important for doctors to stand up for their rights and demand for it. The strike was threatening to cause a medical crisis amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The US dollars trading at 385.43 Nigerian Naira, 11.42 Botswana Pula, 107.20 Kenyan Shilling, and 19.31 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 US dollars trading at 5.59 Brazilian Hail, 75.18 Russian Ruble, 73.80 Indian Rupee, 6.88 Chinese Yuan and at 16.94 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,914 and platinum at $910 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $44.81 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
Afrika Rise and Shine Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today and for the week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Swiso Mashekho, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on plus 277-6300327 or tweet us at channelafrica1. I'll take notes at the top of the hour for the news is African Queen by Tapsi featuring JR. Well, have a good weekend and be safe.